0: Their razors provide a smooth shave every time. And their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash gold. That's Harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. The Peter Shift Show I'd like to thank Raycon for supporting this episode of The Peter Shift Show podcast. Raycon wireless earbuds start at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycon is offering you 15% off right now on all their products and here's all you've got to do to get the deal. Go to buyRaycon.com slash gold. Well, all of the stock market indexes reacting favorably to weaker than expected really economic data that came out today. Or again, as I said on my last podcast, I don't think it even matters what the data is, good, bad. Everybody knows that the Fed is on hold indefinitely at 0% rates. They're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Wall Street knows that. And they're also thinking about launching, I believe, a new round of QE. You know, the Fed's balance sheet has kind of been on hold for a while, sitting around $7.4 trillion. But I have a feeling it's about to take off to a whole new level. And I think that's really what is driving The stock market higher. Of course, the weaker than expected economic data that came out today was the employment situation report, the jobs numbers for the month of January. We just got those out this morning. And, you know, I remember yesterday, I think there were a lot of people that were kind of preparing for a beat. People were thinking that we were going to be surprised with a much stronger jobs report. So, The fact that we came out pretty close to consensus, I think, is a disappointment. Wall Street was looking for 50,000 jobs to be created. There was a very wide range. I think the lowest number was maybe minus 100,000, the upper end plus 400,000. Nowhere near that. We came out at 49,000 jobs, so almost bang on consensus. The bad news, however, was in the revisions Last month, we were told we lost 140,000 jobs. And if that wasn't bad enough, they just revised that down to minus 227,000 jobs. So when you combine the revisions with the relatively low number of jobs created in January, this is a very, very weak number. We also had a pretty weak number the month before. So the jobs market is dramatically decelerating. Yes, the official unemployment rate did come down from 6.7 to 6.3, but that's because so many people have left the labor force. They're not being counted as unemployed, but they're not working and they, you know, they're not contributing to the economy. In fact, if you look beneath the surface, it gets even worse. Manufacturing lost 10,000 jobs they were looking for a gain of 30,000 jobs so a big miss there in manufacturing we actually had the first drop in manufacturing employment since April so that's a particularly weak sign and in fact they revised down the prior months 38,000 gain to a gain of 31,000 so not quite as strong but 10,000 lost in the month of January and when you just look at the private sector payrolls, the, the gain was only 6,000. So 43,000 of that 49,000 in payroll gains came from the government. That's not good news, more people working for government, because the taxpayers have to pay their salaries. And the people working for government, they're not producing anything. In most cases, they're getting in the way of the productive efforts of of the private sector. So we want fewer people working in government, not more, because the more people are working in government, the harder the rest of us have to work to support them, and the less productive the economy becomes. Labor force participation held steady at just 61.4%, and average hourly earnings, which were reported to have risen by 08 in the prior month, now we're, they're saying they rose a full percent. In uh, January, it was only up 0.2, so a little bit below consensus. Although if you look at the average hourly earnings year over year, it's up 5.4%. So that's a pretty strong increase in wages. In fact, if you look at the productivity and cost numbers that came out on Thursday for the fourth quarter of 2020. Productivity plunged by 4.8%. That was a big drop, completely reversing the 5.1% gain that we had the prior quarter on the back of surging labor costs. Labor costs were down 7% in the prior quarter, and they rose 6.8% in the more recent quarter. So companies having to pay more for workers means that overall productivity is going down. And this is just more indication, I think of the inflationary pressures that are building in the economy. Those inflationary pressures are certainly showing up in the bond market because normally when you get weaker than expected economic data, you get a rally in bonds. I mean, that's what's typically happened because people think, oh, the economy is weak. And so people go into bonds, but not anymore. I think the bond market is now thinking a little bit More realistically, when it comes to Fed policy and stimulus, when you have weaker than expected economic data, that just means that bigger stimulus is coming. And that means more deficits, more bonds being sold, more supply, and that is pushing down bond prices and pushing up bond yields. And of course, it means the Federal Reserve is going to be printing more money, creating more inflation. So now the inflationary premiums that get built into the yield curve have to rise as well. In fact, this is the highest we've had for the yield on the 30-year. We closed the week at 1.974, so we're getting very close to 2%. The high for the day was 1.986. And that is the highest we've been since we plunged down below 1% on COVID. The 10-year yield did not make a new post-COVID crash high, but it's pretty close. We closed at 1.17 and the high was 1.188. And that matches the high that we've seen since uh, the COVID recovery in, in bond yields. But there is a lot of upward pressure on interest rates, I'm expecting to see another big increase in rates next week, drop in bond prices. Look at what's happening in the oil market. Oil up about 10% on the week. We close the week just above $57 a barrel. So all those people who say there's nothing to worry about, there's no inflation, look what's happening to labor costs, look what's happening to oil prices. Bond yields are rising despite weaker than expected economic data. All of this smells like stagflation, but the market doesn't care because everything's on autopilot. Everybody is buying everything. The irony of it is one of the things they're not buying is gold. I mean, gold was up today. By about $21, we finished at $18.50, but that's on the back of Thursday's plunge. Gold was down about 40 bucks. It really got hammered early in the morning. And the catalyst was rising bond yields. I mean, this is what has been weighing so heavily on gold prices is the idea that rising rates are bad for gold. But people have to throw out that playbook. This is not going to happen. Rising rates are actually the most bullish thing that could possibly happen for gold because rising rates simply ensures that the Fed is going to have to print even more money in order to prevent yields from rising. Again, that is the box the Fed is in. We have so much debt. Everybody is so leveraged. We have such a massive bubble in the stock market that the Fed can't let interest rates go up regardless of how much higher inflation rises. So they have to pretend there's no inflation or pretend it's not a big deal that we have more inflation because that's exactly what they want. And so they're going to ignore the inflation and it's just going to get worse and worse. And so the gold price should be going up on rising bond yields because all that guarantees is even more inflation and in fact the dollar is not getting much of a bid it was up on the week although it got clobbered today which is something that you would expect on weaker economic data but i think it's getting ready for another major leg down it's just consolidating the last decline you know one bright spot for the week on gold and silver was even though the metals were down on the week The gold and silver mining stocks actually finished the week positive. If you look at the GDX and GDXJ, we had slight gains on the week, despite a decline in metal. Although silver prices did manage the week with slight gains. I mean, you would have thought there would have been a bigger gain with that orchestrated uh, semi-short squeeze that was going on earlier in the week. But that whole thing got eradicated. But silver managed to get back into the black on the week today, we finished with a 64 cent per ounce rise. Uh, silver, I think, at 26 and three quarters. So still looking very good uh, technically. Hopefully, a lot of the uh, the people from Reddit or Wall Street bets uh, didn't get demoralized by the big drop following Monday's surge. And hopefully, they're still holding on to whatever silver they bought. Now, I hope that's not the case for GameStop. GameStop also got clobbered on Thursday is one of the biggest percentage declines, even though it recovered some of those losses today. I think based on Robinhood giving everybody a green light to buy these stocks now, hopefully people ignore that light and take advantage of the opportunity to sell those stocks before they go much lower. But GameStop was up 10 bucks today to close at sixty three seventy seven. Remember, that stock was as high as $480 and over 500 the pre-market. So there's somebody out there that paid more than $500 a share for GameStop. Hopefully that person doesn't still own that stock and they got out at some point on the way down. But as I've been saying, a lot of retail investors are gonna be left holding the bag on that stock as well as all of the other stocks. Look at AMC, uh, that one's down at 683. That one couldn't even hold on to its gains today. It had some strong gains intraday, but sold off and managed to close negative. That stock got as high as $20.36 on this short squeeze and now, you know, closing the week at $6.83. Although, like I said, It wasn't just the little guys that were in on the short squeeze. I read that there was a hedge fund that made $700 million on GameStop. So they had a pretty big position, which I'm sure they were smart enough to liquidate into the squeeze. Unfortunately, a lot of the little investors are going to end up getting squeezed by the squeeze because they're going to be left holding the bag. Apart from the weaker than expected non-farm payroll report, we also got a worse than expected trade deficit for the month of December. But like I said in Wednesday's podcast, very little coverage of the big trade deficit, certainly overshadowed by the jobs report. But again, nobody really cares. We've had these trade deficits for so long and they've gotten so big that there's you know a huge amount of complacency that's been built up as to what differences it make, how big this trade deficit is. I mean, some people think about it because it does subtract from GDP, but there are a lot more problems that this trade deficit not only evidences, but the accumulation of these deficits will lead to that. In fact, Donald Trump understood this. At least he seemed like he understood it when he was a candidate and he was running for office. Interestingly enough, if you... Take a look at the deficit for the entire year, because this is December 2020, so that's the last full year of the Trump presidency. The deficit for the entire year is the largest annual trade deficit since 2008, which was the last year of the George uh, W. Bush presidency. And what that means is that Donald Trump's last year, the trade deficit was larger than in any year under Barack Obama. So clearly, Trump did not make America great again. If the benchmark is winning on trade, if Trump won election based on a promise to fix our trade deficit, to revive our manufacturing sector, and now his last year in office is the worst trade deficit since Bush, and it's worse than any annual deficit under his predecessor, Clearly, his presidency was a failure. The actual number was 66.6 billion, rather an ominous triple six uh, monthly deficit that beat the 65.8 uh, billion that was expected. It was a little bit lower, though, than the prior month, which was revised up. It was originally reported as 68.1 billion, and now it's been revised to 69 billion. So the December deficit, not quite as horrific as the November deficit, but still a huge number to cap off a huge year of red ink. And in fact, most of the stories, the few that there are that were written about the trade deficit, they all blamed it on COVID-19. They were talking about how COVID impacted our economy, slowed down the economy, and the result was a increase in imports and a reduction in exports except the whole world had COVID, right? It's a pandemic. It's not just an American problem. The whole world, Europe, Asia, everybody is dealing with COVID-19. And so you can't blame our trade deficits on COVID because by definition, if we ran bigger trade deficits, other countries that also have COVID ran bigger trade surpluses. So if COVID causes you to import more and export less, why wasn't the rest of the world uh, suffering in the same manner? Why was the rest of the world that was also dealing with COVID, why were they able to export more despite COVID? And the real reason is COVID has got nothing to do with it. The reason that the US saw an increase in its trade deficit is because of the fundamental weakness that underlies our economy going into COVID. The problem is we were a bubble. We didn't have a real viable economy. Our economy doesn't have the productive capacity to produce these consumer goods. And COVID-19 simply highlighted that problem, maybe accelerated the growth of the trade deficits, but it was the underlying problem that might have been exacerbated by COVID-19, but our trading partners didn't have that problem. They were just able to export extra to help sustain America's sick economy that got even sicker with COVID, of course, while those economies were dealing with COVID, they were still able to produce the extra products to sell to the United States. So COVID is simply just an excuse to try to whitewash this deficit and to make it appear as if, well, it's not really fair. You know, the deficit is only this big because of COVID. The deficit is going to be even bigger in 2021 than it was in 2020. And I think one of the reasons it's going to be so much bigger. Is going to be because of the big increase in the price of oil. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you go to joindeletemecom slash gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash gold I expect oil prices to move up to at least $80 a barrel in 2021, maybe even 100 or higher. We're at 57 now, but I think we're going to go much much higher. And I was going to talk about this on Tucker Carlson yesterday, and as I mentioned on Wednesday's show, you know, You never know with these shows. They have a history of canceling last minute, which is exactly what happened with with Tucker Carlson. In fact, an hour before they canceled it, they were all good to go. They were asking me for talking points, and I tweeted out that I was going to be on Tucker Carlson when I was pretty sure that I was going to be on based on the emails that we were exchanging with the producer to kind of home in the talking points. And then about an hour after I put out the tweet... That I was going to be on. The producer emailed and said, unfortunately, you know, the, the show is so packed tonight that we don't have time to really get into this topic. And they asked if they could reschedule for next week. Uh, Tucker's not uh, working tonight, so Friday wasn't uh, a possibility. So I told him, sure. I mean, my uh, calendar is open, so hopefully they will rebook and hopefully they won't cancel. I'll actually make it on to the show. Maybe the third time will be the charm for me because the first time I actually taped the interview, they had it and they just didn't run it. And then this time, you know, they canceled it before we did it. It was going to be live. But my point on oil is that we're going to have to import a lot of expensive oil in 2021. You know, for a while, America's domestic production Uh, was helping to keep our trade deficits down because we weren't importing as much oil as we had in the past because we had this fracking boom that was making us more energy independent. And so that helped to mitigate the trade deficits. Well, we're not going to have that factor this time because I think a lot of America's productive capacity was taken offline when oil prices plunged into negative territory Earlier this year. And the expectation was for oil prices to stay low indefinitely. And so once we get this unexpected surge in the price of oil, I do not expect to see a lot of domestic production returning. So instead, we're going to have to import that oil and we're going to have to pay much, much higher prices for it. And compounding the problem, I think, is going to be the Biden administration, not only what they enact now, But the fear of what they may enact in the future, as far as increased regulations and other burdens that will further increase the cost and risk of American uh, production and of American exploration. And so all of these people who invested in fracking in the past, a lot of these guys got burned. A lot of money was lost. They are not going to come back just because oil is back at $80 or $100 a barrel and take a shot at doing it all over again, especially in a regulatory environment that is very unfriendly to what they're doing. I mean, when Trump was president, yeah, I mean people were uh, were working with an administration that was supporting their activities. But when you have an administration that is very hostile to your industry and threatening all sorts of costly regulations, investment capital is going to go nowhere near uh, the domestic oil and gas market. So we're just going to be more dependent than ever on imported oil, which may be more expensive than ever. So the trade deficits are going to explode, and that means lots more money printing, a lot bigger pressure, more pressure, downward pressure on the U.S. dollar. And of course, that is a perfect environment for gold and silver. I don't know about you, but I feel that I'm always looking at my screen now more than ever. And whether you're an avid news watcher or you're in serious need of distraction, unplugging yourself is easier said than done. One of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content that I need is by putting on my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to some great content. It's especially nice when I'm doing that on my balcony overlooking the ocean here in Puerto Rico rather than being back in Connecticut in the cold snow. So whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, binging an audiobook, or powering through your workout with a pump-up playlist, a pair of Raycons in your ears makes all the difference. No dangling wires or stems to get in your way. Raycons come in a range of stylish colors, but always with a comfortable in-ear fit for that more discreet look. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with their water-sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. And with enough battery life for six hours of playtime, you can stay unplugged for a while. And the best part, Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of those other premium brands. Right now, Raycon is offering 15% off all their products for my listeners, and here's all you've got to do. Go to buyraycon.com slash gold. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order, so feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash gold. Buyraycon.com gold. So we got weak numbers on jobs. We got weak numbers on trade. At the same time, we got a rising oil price. We got rising bond yields. This has got stagflation written all over it. The worst possible economic combination. And traders still don't understand exactly what this means for the price of gold, the price of silver, uh, mining stocks. So to me, again, this is still... An excellent opportunity to be buying. We have this dip, this gift uh, from traders that allowed us to pick up some of these stocks at much better prices than they were trading at Monday. I don't know how long the sale is going to last, but I would pick them up while they can. Problem for uh, some of the you know silver products is the premiums are still very high. So it's kind of hard to get those. But the mining stocks, in particular, I think, are great buy. And as I've been saying on the podcast, I think the best way for everybody to get involved in the mining sector is through my fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. Uh, So pick that up. Uh, You know, it's it's traded at all the various uh, discount brokers. Of course, you can open up an account with Euro Pacific Capital. You can go to epacfunds.com, epacfunds.com. And if you have a small amount of money, you could just buy directly from my, the website and get some money into the gold fund. Of course, also don't overlook the emerging market fund. Emerging markets, I think, are going to be the real winners when it comes to non-mining stocks. Those are the stocks that had the most pressure from a strong dollar. Therefore, they're going to get the most relief from a weak dollar. And since the dollar is going to be much weaker than almost everybody thinks, I think the emerging markets are going to be much stronger than just about anybody thinks. But another very bullish factor for gold and silver is the $1.9 trillion quote unquote stimulus bill that just passed a sharply divided U.S. Senate, basically 50-50, the bill split directly on party lines, 50 Democrats voting in favor of the stimulus, 50 Republicans voting against it, which means the vice president was able to break the tie in favor of the Democrats, and so the stimulus passed without a single Republican vote. Now it's going to go to the House. I think there were some slight differences between the House version of the stimulus and the Senate version, but obviously they're going to iron out those wrinkles. The House is going to pass it. They don't need any Republicans to come on board, and Biden is going to sign it. And that new stimulus is going to be law, which means we're going to get a lot more money printing. But this is not the last stimulus of the Biden presidency. This is the first, and it's probably the smallest, most likely- the next stimulus is going to be higher than this one, right? They're going to keep on outdoing themselves, bidding more and more in progressive rounds of stimulus. Because again, the stimulus is going to sedate the economy. It's not going to make things better. It's going to make things worse. And so therefore, it's going to lay the foundation for the next round of stimulus, right? You're putting gasoline on the fire and then the fire gets bigger. And so you try to put it out and you throw on more gasoline and now you got an even bigger fire. So they keep repeating the same process. But what should really be scaring the markets when it comes to inflation and the bond market is look at Mitt Romney. I Mitt mean, Romney now is basically throwing his hat in the ring when it comes to giving more money to families who have children. He even proposed that families that have children get paid $4,200 for each child they have. This is per year uh, under the age of six. And I think between six and 17, so under 18, uh, above six, it's reduced to $3,000 a year. But that's a tremendous amount of money to send out to families, especially if you have families, three, four five kids. That's a lot of money per family. Now, I think Romney is proposing uh, doing away with some other programs in order to fund this, but I'm sure that that stuff is not going to fly with a lot of the Democrats. But the fact that he's already coming on board with more money to families and it's not means tested, I don't think it's like, hey, you get this. Uh, Maybe if you're really rich, it gets phased out. I'm not really sure what the details are, but you don't have to be unemployed or anything. Uh, So this is all sorts of money uh, that the government doesn't have uh, that it's going to be printing and giving to families. Of course, you know, it creates a very big incentive for people to have kids in the first place. It also creates an incentive for people to lie and pretend they have kids that they don't actually have. Uh, You know, there's so much fraud in every program. I mean, people can easily exaggerate uh, the number of kids they have. I know they're supposed to have social security numbers or or something like that, but I'm sure there are a lot of people claiming dependence uh, that don't actually exist. But this is just moving us closer and closer to this whole concept of universal basic income that people just need to be given money uh, and you know, as some kind of birthright, why should people who don't have any children at all, why should they be taxed to subsidize people who have children? I mean, people who don't have any children, uh, they give up a lot when it comes to uh, all of the joy and all of the benefits uh, that children bring to your life. But if, if they're not gonna have any children, if that's their decision, why are they being taxed to support other people who have made a decision to have children. Look, you're supposed to have children when you can afford to support them, when you can afford to take care of them. I mean, you can't just have children and then demand that the government uh, take care of your kids or the other people take care of your kids. People have to be responsible. You bring children into the world when you have the means of providing for them because that's your duty. As you have children, you got to support those kids. You're supposed to educate those kids. You're supposed to make you know, good citizens out of those children. That's kind of a responsibility that you have to society when you make a decision to bring a child into the world. You know, it's not like, hey, I decided to have a child, so it's up to society to support my kid. The government has to take a gun and put it to the head of my neighbor and say, hey, your neighbor just had some kids, so now we're going to take some of your money uh, to help uh, support those children. I know people say, oh, it's heartless. You know, people, everybody should have a right to have kids, whether they can afford uh, to raise them or not. No, you don't have that right. There's nothing in the Constitution that says people have a right to children. You, know, you have a right to have the children that you are able to support. You can't just demand other people support your children. That's like pushing other people into a life of involuntary servitude. Hey, I decided to have kids, so now you have a burden, you have a responsibility uh, to support those kids. No, the people who have that burden, the people who have that responsibility are are the parents that bring that child into the world. They're the ones that have the obligation to support and raise and educate that kid. We should not be socializing these responsibilities, turning them over to the state. Of course, we've done that and it's created a disaster. Of course, one of the biggest disasters is in education because once upon a time, Americans were responsible for educating their own children. And when that was the case, children got great educations. But when we turned over that responsibility to the government or the government basically usurped that responsibility, they're doing a horrible job. Now our kids are learning nothing. Our kids are being indoctrinated. Kids are graduating high school functionally illiterate. And then they go on to college, even though they had no business graduating high school, which brings me to the next topic that is all over the news now that should be scaring the hell again out of the bond market, out of the US dollar. It should be driving lots of people into gold. And this is the student debt forgiveness. Now there's a lot of talk about Biden signing an executive order because I guess he can't get all the Democrats uh, to come on board with the massive student debt Relief. Maybe it's Joe Manchin that said he's not going to sign on to it. And I don't know that any of the Republicans would go for this. But the pressure coming from Elizabeth Warren and AOC and Bernie Sanders is for $50,000 of student debt forgiveness per person, which would wipe out all of the student debt because the average guy that has student debt or gal has less than $50,000. So for most people, the slate would be wiped clean and they would be completely out of debt. Now, obviously, there are a lot of other people, if they have 100,000, 150,000, well, a good chunk of their debt would be wiped out, but they would still have some debt left, although I doubt they would uh, pay it because they're gonna figure, well, if they forgave 50,000, maybe they'll forgive more. In fact, the moral hazard of this is enormous. I mean, I bet just because... They're talking about this. Nobody is making their student loan payments. I mean, I haven't seen the data, but I would bet that delinquencies are through the roof. Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad. With Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. I mean, you would have to be a complete fool if you were making payments on your student loans. In fact, I think because of COVID, maybe no one even has to. I forget what the rules are. But even if there wasn't this moratorium uh, because of COVID, why would anybody make a payment on a loan that is probably going to be forgiven? Because you're just throwing your money away. I mean, you might as well keep that money for yourself and buy something because then you're diminishing uh, what you're going to get. Let's say you have $40,000 in student loans. Why would you want to reduce that by making a payment? Why would you want to bring it down to 39000 or 38000 Because it's all going to get forgiven. So you want to have as much debt forgiven as possible. So no one's going to make payments. In fact, what if there are some people that were going to pay cash to go to college? They're not going to do that now, right? Let's say somebody saved up money to put their kid through college. They'd have to be a complete fool to actually write that check. Why buy something that you're probably going to get for free? Even the possibility that you're going to get it for free, you'd have to be a complete fool to pay for it. So now, demand for student loans is probably just going to go off the charts because now, a lot of people who were not going to take out the student loans, because probably a lot of parents didn't want to saddle their kids with student loans. So they saved up money so that they can pay uh, for their kids to go to college. Well, they might as well just use that money now. Just spend it, right? Add on to your house, buy a vacation house. Why would you take your college money and actually use it for college when your kid can go out there and borrow money and the loan's going to be forgiven? You don't have to worry about your kid being saddled with debt because the government is gonna unsaddle them. The government's gonna forgive it. So this is just massive moral hazard that guarantees that the total amount of student debt is going to surge. So it ends up costing the government a lot more than they think, because once they start forgiving student loans, a lot more students are gonna take on a lot more loans on the expectation that they're not gonna to have to pay it back. And of course, the other part of this moral hazard that nobody seems to understand is the colleges and universities. I mean, these guys are loving this whole idea of student debt forgiveness. I mean, they're gonna be the biggest winners uh, if debts are forgiven because if you understand the dynamics, right, that are at play in college uh, tuition, the reason that tuition is so high is because the government guaranteed and then issued directly all these student loans. Without all these student loans, kids wouldn't have all this money to pay these sky high tuitions, so tuition would be much lower. Colleges would be under competitive pressure to keep their product affordable, so they would still have customers, which is the way things were before the 1960s when the government got involved with guaranteed student loans. But once colleges knew that students could borrow a lot of money, well, then that enabled them to really raise tuition. And of course, you know, they, they were competing with each other based on other factors, how nice their dorms were, what their gym facilities were like, or extracurricular activities, or there were all sorts of things. That students wanted, and they didn't care how much they cost because they were borrowing the money from the government. And so this enabled the students to pay a lot more for college, and this enabled the colleges to charge a lot more. And it was a self-perpetuating spiral because as the loans drove up tuitions, the government simply said, okay, we need to increase the size of the loans Because college is getting more expensive, not realizing that it was the loans that were making it expensive. And so then they increase the size of the loans that they guarantee. And the response is that, well, colleges raise tuitions again because the the students have the ability to borrow even more money. Well, this is going to send that moral hazard into overdrive. Because when the students thought they were going to have to repay the loans, they probably had... A little bit of a hesitancy with respect to how much they borrowed. I mean, they'd have to think, gee, when I graduate, I'm going to have all this debt. I'm going to have to pay this money back. So they might have been a little bit reluctant to really run up the amount of debt. You know, maybe some of them even had part-time jobs, you know, to try to pay for some of the college on their own because they didn't want to have too much debt, right? So there was some pushback based on the prospect of eventually having to repay this debt After you graduate, but now that students are being conditioned to believe that they're not going to have to pay back the loans, it doesn't matter that the loans are going to be forgiven. Well, now who cares how much you borrow? It doesn't make a difference. Nobody's going to give a damn about how much debt they run up if they know they're not going to have to repay it. And if the colleges know this, which they will, well, then they have an even greater incentive to raise tuition you know and help the kids borrow the money and even if one of their potential you know students says well you know your tuition is You know, fifty thousand dollars a year. I mean, I don't want to graduate with two hundred thousand dollars a day. Oh, who cares about that? You think government's going to forgive it? They're not going to let. They're not going to let you be stuck with all this debt. Don't worry about the debt. You're not going to have to pay that back. Just think about how much fun you're going to have for the next four years at this great college. You know, with all this great stuff that we're throwing in there, right? We're going to really make your life fantastic. We're going to throw in all sorts of goodies to increase your college experience, yeah, it costs a lot more, but who cares? You're not going to have to pay for any of it. It's all free, right? So this makes it really easy for the colleges to charge even more money. But the other thing that everybody overlooks, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, is the negative economic effects that will result from the debt forgiveness. People like Elizabeth Warren and AOC, they just focus on what's the obvious good part about this, right? They focus on all these young people that are no longer going to have to make payments on their loans, right? So now all that money that used to be used to repay the loan, well, now they have that money to do other things with. They can spend it. They could take vacations. They could buy more stuff. Maybe they can buy that nice car or maybe they can use that money to pay a higher rent, move out from uh, their parents' basements. Maybe they can actually qualify for a mortgage to buy a house because they no longer have that debt, right? A lot of times the banks look at your student loans. You can't borrow money. You can't get a mortgage. You got so much college debt. We'll wipe out that debt. And the obligation to make payments and service it, now all of a sudden you're better credit risk. So maybe more young people will be able to buy homes. So they focus on all this extra spending that's going to be in the economy. And oh, that's obviously good. But they don't understand the source of all that spending. Because basically it's as if the Federal Reserve just printed up a bunch of money and gave it to all these students. Because when the government funded all of their education, the government created that money and gave it to the students to buy tuition. But now the students have to repay that money to the government. And so the money supply that expanded when the students were going to college ultimately contracts after they graduate and those loans are repaid. So repaying the loans is deflationary because the students are sending money back to the government that the government initially sent to them. But now the government is telling the students, hey, all that money we loaned you to go to college, you don't have to pay it back. You get to keep it. And by the way, it's tax free, right? You're not even have to pay income taxes on the fact that all that debt has just been forgiven. So this is basically like all this new money, right? Because now all these kids are going to be spending money on stuff that they used to spend on nothing. When they were repaying their loans, right, the government was just getting this money back because remember, the government has directly issued a lot of these loans and now the government's not going to get its money back. So the taxpayers take this hit, but now there's all this money that's in circulation that wouldn't have been in circulation if it was being returned to the government. So now you have all this demand in the economy, but you don't have new stuff right? There's not more products being produced. There's just more money being spent. So this is inflationary. Also, there are still a lot of government guaranteed student loans that are being forgiven. So these are not loans that were made directly by the government. These were loans that were made by private banks, but guaranteed by the government. So now what happens when the government forgives the obligation of the student to repay the loan? Well, now the lender, the bank, is still gonna get their money back, but now it's gonna be the U.S. government that is paying those banks instead of the students because the government has guaranteed the loans. So where is the U.S. government going to get the money to make the loan payments on behalf of the students, or graduates rather, who are no longer obligated to make the payments? Well, that money is gonna have to be printed. So now, instead of money going from one private citizen to the bank, Right? The money is going from the U.S. government to that bank, but the private citizen was using money already in circulation to make his loan payment. But the federal government is getting brand new money that is going to be printed by the Federal Reserve, and it's going to use that brand new money to make these loan payments. So all that is inflationary. Nobody is going to raise taxes to fund this. Right? This is all going to be funded through inflation. And so what is that going to do? That is going to drive consumer prices through the roof. How is that good for the economy? A lot of people are going to suffer the cost of all this student debt forgiveness. Yes, students themselves may benefit, right? The ones that have a lot of debt will be the winners because they don't have to pay it back. But who are the losers? The losers are all the people who didn't have any student debt forgiven, but now they have to pay higher consumer prices. Yes, all the students are going to be paying higher consumer prices, but they're going to have extra money to buy that stuff because they no longer have to repay their loans. But everybody else isn't going to get all this debt relief because they didn't have the debt, but they're still going to be forced to pay much higher prices for all the goods and services that they need. So, That's going to negatively impact them. But I think all of this inflation is going to have a negative impact on the overall economy, which is going to impact a lot of these young people who no longer have big loans, but they're living in a weaker economy that has fewer employment opportunities for them. So pretty much they may be completely dependent on these government programs Uh, for their livelihood, especially, too, if we end up getting this higher minimum wage, which is likely to be passed, and other uh, mandates on employers with respect to mandated medical leave or family leave or all sorts of things that are going to make a larger segment of the U.S. population legally unemployable. So rather than helping to produce goods and services, all they're going to do is, is participate in the consumption of those goods and services. And the money that they're going to use is going to be the money that's provided to them by the government through the Fed and the printing press. And this is all inflation. And this is going to make the stagflation of the 1970s right look tame by comparison. And it is amazing, again, that we are so close to this major surge and there has never been more complacency. Nobody cares. Nobody at the Fed cares, or at least if they care, they're too afraid to acknowledge that they're concerned. But nobody on Wall Street is concerned. Again, I mentioned this on Wednesday. The only people who are concerned about this are the people trying to pump Bitcoin. But outside of the people pumping Bitcoin, nobody can give a damn about inflation. Nobody's worried, which makes me think, why do these Bitcoin guys think they're going to be so successful in persuading uh, corporations and institutions to buy Bitcoin when they're not even worried about anything. They, they they think everything is great. They love the Fed. They think the US economy is fantastic. They're not even interested in real gold. Why would they want to take a chance on digital gold? But if you recall the environment leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, nobody was worried. Nobody was concerned. Everyone was complacent. And then when they got completely blindsided by events that should have been obvious, right? Oh, nobody could have predicted this. Nobody could have seen this coming. Well, remember, it's the same crowd, the same people who are oblivious to what should have been so obvious leading up to the 2008 financial crisis are even more oblivious to an inflationary crisis, to a dollar crisis that will be even worse than the financial crisis. And it's probably just as close, yet they still can't see it. So the opportunity is to Position yourself for the outcome that nobody expects, because that's where you get the biggest return. You know, one of the reasons that GameStop was able to rise as much as it did is because very few people expected something like that to happen. Well, very few people expect a dollar crash. I know there are a lot of people who expect the dollar to decline, but there's a big difference between an orderly decline and a crash. And a lot of people think gold might rally. There's a big difference between a small rally and the meteoric-type rise that I think is going to happen. Remember, 1970s, the price of gold went from $35 an ounce to $850. Think about the magnitude of that. I know that you know if you want to compare that to Bitcoin, it doesn't sound like much, but it's actually a much bigger move when you think about the market cap. That gold represented at that time and how much more important gold was to the global economy. Bitcoin is a sideshow. Bitcoin doesn't matter, but you get a 5x move, a 10x move in the price of gold, that is a game changer. I don't even think the fiat monetary system could survive that big an increase in the price of gold because what it really is is a massive decrease in the value of fiat currencies. I mean, no one cares about the relationship between the dollar and Bitcoin. It doesn't matter how many dollars you need to buy a Bitcoin because nobody needs a Bitcoin, but it makes a big deal about how many dollars you need to buy an ounce of gold, especially when you look at all of these central banks that are holding gold in reserve. None of them are holding Bitcoin in reserve, so it doesn't matter, but they're holding gold. And when gold really starts to move up in relationship to the dollar, that puts a lot of pressure on other central banks that don't have a high enough allocation to gold in their reserves to buy more. And the more gold central banks buy, the more dollars they're going to sell to buy it, which means the less relevant the dollar becomes in the global economy and the closer we are to the dollar losing that reserve currency status and this whole dollar hegemony coming to an end and America's ride on the global gravy train ending with it.